Welcome to Melbourne Recital Centre's Sound Escapes podcast. I'm Kat McGurran. In this podcast, we explore J.S. Bach's body of work, The Well-Tempered Clavier, which is the subject of the 48 Ways of Looking at Bach concert series this year at the Melbourne Recital Centre. Our special guests are Marshall Maguire, the Director of Artistic Planning at the Recital Centre, harpsichordist and J.S. Bach expert Liz Anderson, and our final guest is Paul Grabowski, the inaugural artist-in-residence at the Recital Centre, who launched the series earlier this year. Marshall Maguire starts every day by playing one of the 48 works on his piano. He explained to me how the music inspires him and why he felt it was important to bring this work to the Recital Centre in 2017. Johann Sebastian Bach, German composer, 1685 to 1750. And those dates are really interesting for me because it now really defines the Baroque period. Um, Before that, you could say it was the Renaissance, the late Renaissance. Before that, then it was medieval and going back. After this, it's really the classical period. So if you think classical, sort of Mozart getting into Beethoven. So Bach spans an entire definition of a musical period. He was an organist. He worked in both um, the court for private employers, but towards the end of his year, he worked in the church And this is where this is particularly interesting, this project as well. But his main work, really, working in both the the palaces and in the cathedrals, was to provide content for the week services or events that would be happening. So he was really a a jobbing composer. It's like writing, I guess, jingles or stuff for TV episodes. You know, you've got to just keep it fresh every week. So he'd write a work, move on to the next one. So the idea that we have now, we look at Bach's, incredible body of work, a huge number of works. We think, wow, that's amazing. But it's, it's, we've got to remember that it was built up, up lots of little tiny works. Unlike something like Wagner's Ring Cycle, which was always conceived as a massive work over 30 years, and that was a, just a long, slow trawl towards the end. Bach was very nimble and very quick, and, and once it was there, it was gone. These books of keyboard music, there are two books of them, each containing 24 preludes and fugues. He wrote the first one in 1722, and it was stimulated by this idea that he was fascinated by about the capacity of a keyboard instrument which has fixed tuning. You know, once you've tuned it, you've tuned it. Not like a violin where you you can create any notes and, and adapt them. You can play them in tune and out of tune. A keyboard is there. But the way that tuning had developed through the years, you know, over hundreds and thousands of years, was that nothing is ever... There are no equal intervals. Some intervals are wide, some intervals are narrow, and that also affects the feel of the music as well. It's a really complicated science, and um, we haven't got ten weeks to go into it here, but it it basically means that mean-tempered tuning, which was used early in his career, in the early part of the Baroque, was about making certain intervals pure and that could be the third in the in the scale or the fifth and so it meant that in C major you could tune C major beautifully and everything would resonate beautifully according to natural Pythagorean sort of harmonies and so on but once you got too far from C major things started to get a bit awry because those those intervals would have different relationships to different notes so it's 
there's a, a thing called the cycle of fifths in music, which is, and again, we haven't got time to go into it now, but um, it's all available out there in the world. Um, once you get too far away from C, so the, on one hand you go from C major to G major, the next key is D major, then to A major. By the time you get to E, you're five keys away from G, from C, which means that the intervals are starting to get bigger and or smaller, and the tuning's getting, to our, our modern ears, would be getting very clunky and crazy and bewildering. So it meant really in the early Baroque that key, you could only, could, people only really played in four or five keys either side of C, so it limited the harmonic language. Bach, having a whole keyboard there, thought, why can't I play in all the keys? Why can't I play in C major and F sharp major as well? So he explored this idea where the, the interval of the octave would be pure, and then the 12 notes in the octave would all be spaced equally apart, equal temperament or well-tempered. So it meant that everything was kind of a bit flat. It was evened out. Now, to those ears, those modern ears back then, it would have been quite odd to hear. For our ears, it's quite normal. So at the time, it was really revolutionary. It would have created a lot of discussion, a lot of um, dispute, but he worked through, he thought the best way to do it was to work with his model of preludes and fugues. Now, prelude is, as the name would indicate, is something that is a little introduction. It's a little fantasy almost. There's no formal structure to a prelude. A fugue, on the other hand, is, does have a very formal structure, and he used that as a way to um, interweave different lines and his sort of mathematical, precise mind into magic. So these works, as I say, there are 24 preludes and fugues in each book. He wrote the first one in 1722, and 20 years later, he compiled another book. And the first book was written when he was a curtain working in the court there for the um, for the princes, and the second one was when he was in Leipzig, where he was the Kapellmeister at the St. Thomas Church, writing all the great mature works. So it's fascinating to have these books side by side to see how things move. The idea for this project came up I don't know where it came from. I've always loved these works, and in fact, I, I try to start every day at home playing at least one of these preludes or fugues because it just... Playing yourself yeah, or recording? Yeah, no, playing at home on the piano. Just because, I don't know, maybe it's getting older, and, and I just love them so much. And I, Every time I play something, a prelude or a fugue, I find something different in it. It's just a, a, truly the gift that keeps on giving and giving and giving. So I, th I was trying to think of a project for this year that was a big project that would take an audience from beginning to end with a project. And there aren't many of those you can do in music. This is this is a great one. So I thought, well, why don't we invite six keyboard players to come and give their own particular view of Bach by pairing it with other ideas that they have, other composers that they like, other composers they think might have been influenced by them. So the idea is that we've got six concerts throughout the year, um, we've got seven pianists because the second, third concert is with two pianists um, and we're doing it on harpsichord, we're doing it on piano so it's a very wide way, there are 48 different ways of looking at Bach throughout the year. Melbourne harpsichordist Liz Anderson lives and breathes the music of J.S. Bach. Like Marshall, she enjoys the intellect behind the work and Liz shared some of her insights into what she describes as the genius of Bach's music. 
back then, you know, the idea of performing a piece of music that had been written 100 years earlier was probably really weird. Um, and it really wasn't until after Bach died, a whole load of composers got really interested in Bach's music. For example, Mozart went to visit Leipzig and got into the library and found himself one of the motets that Bach had written. And they didn't have a full score. They just had six individual parts for six vocal lines. And he just spread them out um, on the table and because he was a genius, he could work out what kind of music that was going to make by looking at the six pages and putting the chords together. And he said, oh, here's something one can learn from. And he wasn't the first or the last who thought that you could learn a lot by studying Bach. When I'm reading a piece of Bach off the page, it feels to me like a three-dimensional Sudoku, like everything fits in its right place And almost to the point of being predictable, but Bach's far too intelligent to ever let anything become predictable. Uh, He builds the unpredictability into the structure itself. Are any of the voices meant to be brought out or more significant than the others? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I was just teaching one of these fugues the other day to a student of mine who's also learning piano from another teacher. And she said to me, my teacher said that this is... Uh, the subject of the fugue so I should bring it out here and then she looked at me and she asked me what I thought and what I really think is that a fuga or a fugue Bach was using the Latin it means battle and it's a battle between multiple voices and each one of those voices is battling to be heard am I supposed to be the one who makes the decision as to which voice wins as the interpreter Or should I be leaving that up to my audience? I think, given that I'm a harpsichordist, which means I'm playing on a non-touch sensitive instrument as on a daily basis, I think my personal decision would be that I would like to give the audience the chance to make those decisions for themselves. Because in this four-voice fugue, I have equal respect for every voice. These pieces could be played on any instrument, not just keyboard instruments. Why do you think they're so transferable or they're so adaptable? I think all Bach is imminently transferable and adaptable. Uh, For example, I've played, I've accompanied saxophonists playing Bach. Um, I've played with a number of cellists playing the gamba sonatas and I've also played with gamba players. It never seems to pose too much of a problem playing the works on different instruments to the point it seems to be such um, absolute music that it just doesn't seem to matter. You can arrange them for pretty much anything. Beethoven arranged uh, one of them for a string quartet and it's beautiful. Um, And you get the beauty of, with the string quartet, of the stringed instruments being able to make a crescendo on a note or a diminuendo, which we can't do on our keyboard instruments. And I'm sure Bach would have loved that. It's, you know, you do what you can on the instrument that you've got But with this kind of music, all that really matters is the style, I think. And you can transfer that style to any instrument. Uh, Interestingly, uh, C.P.E. Bach wrote uh, True Art of Playing Keyboard Instruments and clearly was extremely influenced by his, his father's teaching. And he devotes a whole book to the harpsichord, the piano, the organ, mentions them at the beginning, and the clavichord, mustn't forget that. But then in the entire book... There's no further mention of any apparent differences. He just talks about 
how to accompany, how to do ornaments, what kind of technique you need to use. But nowhere does he mention that you should do something different on one instrument from what you do on the other. So all we can work out from that is that there wasn't a difference, that they just pretty much did the same thing regardless of which keyboard instrument they were playing. And I think you can just extend the idea that Bach loved to um, recycle his music. Um, so you've got a flute sonata that got recycled as a gamba sonata or you've got a trio sonata that was recycled, uh, an organ trio sonata that was recycled for three different instruments. Um, so obviously he wasn't at all wedded to any particular instrument. You, you could mix and match. When you perform these works for audiences, what do you want? to convey to the audience or what do you want the audience to get out of the experience? I want them to hear the music and that kind of sounds like a no-brainer, doesn't it? But I want the music to be delivered in a way that they can notice anything that they want to notice. So most of the fugues that we're doing, the fugue, well, there's one two-part fugue, there are mostly three or four voices. Um, I want them to be able to listen to any voice, to choose a voice and just listen to the alto voice in the fugue and to be able to identify the melody that that voice is playing. And you can hear so much in Bach. I don't think that the person who's doing the interpreting should choose for the audience which part they should be listening to. It's not like there's a melody and some chords there are four melodies. Listen to any one you like. And if you hear the piece again tomorrow, listen to a different melody. It happens to me. I get surprises. Just the guy's a complete genius. What, what is it about Bach? I mean, there are so many composers that you could admire the music of. What is it about Bach that makes you so excited? Like your eyes are actually alight when you're talking about this. <laughs> it challenges me. I feel as though I can't do it justice. I feel it challenges me to make it the best that I possibly can. I don't, I don't get that feeling so much with other music. Bach, to me, feels the most challenging. I like that. Paul Grabowski launched the series earlier this year. He took Book One, Part One in a very contemporary direction, exploring the idea of what other instruments can bring to the work. He performed alongside Eki Veltheim on viola, Genevieve Lacey on recorder, Eugene Ugetti on percussion, and Ben Grayson on laptop. He explained why he felt compelled to take this work in such a direction. What I thought I was doing, what I still think I did, was I created a work, a kind of a space in which these pieces could be approached from a different perspective, and then because it's just the way I think, I, I looked at each individual piece and thought, well, what's, what is this piece? And how can I bring myself to it in such a way that I can give my own interpretation of it, which you can only do in a sort of a limited fashion if you only play them on the piano. I mean, there's only so much you can do because if you're going to play those notes, then what do you... I mean, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> between Glenn Gould and, you know, I don't know, Vander London, or somebody like that. Yes, okay, there's a world of different interpretations, but it's still the same notes. And for me, you know, given the fact that Bach himself was an improviser and I felt that exploring them, breathing a different life into them, 
being a little arch in, in the way that some of them were handled, uh, not taking the whole thing too seriously, but at the same time being incredibly respectful of the originals. We could do something as a group which was an homage to Bach, but also, at the end of the day, quite a contemporary experience. If Bach was alive today, mm. what do you think he would be doing? Right. That's an interesting question. I think he would have been fascinated by technology, because he was certainly fascinated by the technology of his era. In certain ways, he was a very conservative composer, but he was a great synthesis. He was a synthesis of a lot of things that were happening around him. So he was what we would describe now as a great listener. He used to go to great lengths to get scores by other composers and he would transcribe them or do his own arrangements of things, famously of Vivaldi particularly. So he got hold of this music from Italy and France and you know other parts of Central Europe and he familiarised himself with those things. So he really knew the traditions but also he would have been familiar with earlier organ music, the masters of Flemish organ music, and he could write incredible vocal music. If you listen to something like the Matthew Passion, which has got some of the most dramatic, moving writing for voices that's ever been written. So he would have, I'm sure, embraced technology. He probably would have been very across various streams of popular music and of course he would have been an extraordinary master of writing for the orchestra and he was a great improviser so I'm sure he would have been drawn if not to jazz particularly certainly to musical situations in which improvising would have played a role so he was like a kind of you know he had a Newtonian kind of brain he could join all of the dots. He was like a, like, a, like a scientist. And that's why it's important to continuously remind ourselves that great art speaks way outside of its own temporal frame. And that's why it's important, because we are able to continue to have a conversation with this German man who died more than... 200 years ago, 250 years ago. You know, that is that is in itself a miraculous thing. Thanks for listening to the Melbourne Recital Centre's Sound Escapes podcast on The Well-Tempered Clavier and the 48 Ways of Looking at Bach concert series. For more information, related news, stories and events, visit melbournerecital.com.au. I'm Kat McGoran. Till next time. <laughs>